Well, I realize you probably just got comfortable. Would you please go ahead and stand back up? Well, today's going to be a little bit different than our typical Sunday. We are going to spend the majority of our time this morning simply reading God's Word. And I have primarily chosen passages from Deuteronomy. We're going to read through the book of Deuteronomy, and then I've selected some other Old Testament passages from the first five books of the Scriptures. And I know this is a lot to ask of you, and it may be impossible for some, but I'd like to ask you to stand for the entire reading of Scripture this morning. Now, I I think it's only fair that I tell you that this morning's sermon is not going to be your typical 25 or so minutes. Uh, If I've timed it right, we're going to come in just under five hours this morning. (laughs) So, are are you ready? Are you ready? Okay. So, most of you know I'm I'm joking around this morning, right? Yeah, but what if I wasn't? What she just said, okay. What if I was serious? Would you be excited? Some of you would. Some of you are lying. That's okay. (laughs) Would you be thinking, this is the perfect Sunday. I'm so glad I came to Campbell this morning. Or, if you're honest, how many of you would be plotting your escape right now? All right, full confession. If I was an audience member, you would have a hard time beating me to the parking lot this morning. I can't think of very few, th- many things that are more tiring and exhausting and boring than listening to a guy stand up and read ancient history and ancient laws for something like five hours. So go ahead and be seated. Yeah. And some of you right now are thinking, how'd this guy get to be a preacher? I know, I'm just as surprised as you are uh, by the whole thing. So, for the past several weeks, we've been involved in a sermon series entitled Out of the Ashes based on the book of Nehemiah. And primarily, throughout the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, it's this story of Nehemiah helping the people of Jerusalem work together to rebuild their protective wall. And it's this remarkable story. Because despite the fact they're under constant attack, under constant threat by people who are determined to see them fail, Somehow these people came together, people both inside of the city and outside of the city, and they worked together and they rebuilt this protective wall in a mere 52 days. I mean, in so many ways, it's it's mind-blowing. But believe it or not, rebuilding the wall was not the most important thing that took place under Nehemiah's leadership. You say, really, it wasn't? No, it, it wasn't. Rebuilding the wall was not the most important thing that happened. It was actually the rebuilding of a people. You see, walls were very, very important in ancient days. We've talked about this. That without protective walls, there was no security and there was no prosperity. But guess what? Life is not found in protective walls. Life is not found in prosperity and security. Life, full life, is found in a life-giving relationship with the living God. And this is what Nehemiah helped lead the way in rebuilding. And this rebuild began on New Year's Day. Not our New Year's Day, but their New Year's Day, which was the first day of the seventh month. 
And it began with the reading of the book of law, the first five books of Scripture. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 2 and 3. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men and women and others who could understand. Now, please notice this wasn't some kind of trick by Ezra. He wasn't like one of those preachers that advertises a New Year's Eve party, but then turns it into a marathon devotional as soon as he has everybody captured at the church building. Have you ever fallen for that bait and switch in the past? If you have, you probably thought, not going to do that again, right? That, that's pretty miserable. But, but he didn't do that at all. In fact, Ezra was probably thrilled the worship service broke out on this New Year's Day occasion. But it wasn't really his idea. Whose was it? Was it Nehemiah's? No, it wasn't Nehemiah's either. We go back to the writing of Nehemiah, verse 1. It says, When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord commanded for Israel. Please notice this. A life-giving relationship with God begins with the reading of Scripture. Now, it wasn't that the people were anxious to hear ancient history or less, uh, history lessons or brush up on the law particularly. They asked for the law of Moses to be read because they desired to hear God speak. Now, Scripture does contain history, and it contains law, and Scripture contains poetry, and it contains prophecy, but that's not what Scripture is. Scripture, above all else, is the voice of the living God speaking an old but fresh word to every single generation. The question is, do we desire to hear God speak. Now, I have a feeling that many of us, truthfully speaking, are anxious to speak to God. We love to talk to God about what we want. We love to talk to God about what we need. But do we have the same interest, an equal interest, in hearing what God has to say to us? If we did, I have a feeling that the percentage of daily Bible readers would be higher than 25% that there would be more people who'd be engaged in Bible studies and home groups, and that our minds wouldn't wander five minutes into the sermon. I want you to think about it this way. One day, we're going to stand face-to-face -face with the living God. Now, I'm not sure how that day will go, but I have a feeling that He will do something more than just stare at us. At least I hope he does, because that would be awkward and intimidating, wouldn't it? I have a hunch that he'll have a lot to say to us. Words of welcome, and words of joy, and words of love, and other great things to say to us. Now, do you think at any moment in that conversation between you and God, and he's speaking these words to you, that you'll have to say at any point, hey, hey, God, could you hang on? Could you repeat that? I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. I was thinking about all the things I needed to get done this afternoon. Do you think there'll be any moment in that conversation when you have to kind of tap your watch because God can't seem to land the plane and you're like, hey, I got other things to get to this afternoon? Me either. 
Whether God speaks for five minutes or five years, I imagine we will hang on his every word. And this is the way the people of Jerusalem responded to the reading of the word. Verse 3, all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. They didn't just listen for five or 15 or even 50 minutes. For an entire week, they stood from morning to midday, listening to Ezra read scripture because they hungered to hear God speak into their lives. And as the people listened to God speak, they became convicted. In fact, tears began to roll down their cheeks when they realized that our lives are just as broken as those walls that we just repaired. As they listened to God speak into their lives, they realized that we've been living life on our own terms. We've not been living life based on the will of God. And so they're, they're broken, tears are flowing. It is the, the right reaction. It is the appropriate reaction for the moment. And yet, Nehemiah and Ezra and the spiritual leaders come and say, right reaction, but it's not the time to shed tears. Not right now. Verse 9 and 10. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest, and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. And Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. This was to be a day of fasting. It was to be a day of celebrating not weeping. Why is that? Because these people, the people of Jerusalem, were in a relationship with a God who was faithful despite their unfaithfulness. Yes, they had they'd bailed on him, but God had never given up on them. And I want to remind you this morning that God's never given up on you. Never. Not once. It doesn't matter how depraved your behavior might have been in the past. It doesn't matter that you disobeyed your parents. It doesn't matter that maybe you wrecked a marriage. It doesn't matter that perhaps you've cursed like a sailor. It doesn't matter that maybe you've gambled away your family's savings. God's love and his care for you has never, ever wavered. Now, I, I don't say that to make light of our sin. Our sin is cringeworthy. And it should bring tears to our eyes, but I want us to hear this. This joyous news of a faithful God should strengthen our spirit. It should bring a smile to our face. It should set our feet to dancing. That this is who God is. And this, this news of this God deserves a celebration today as much as it did then. Amen. And just as the people of Jerusalem paused to participate in good food, Choice wine. Every single Sunday, we pause. We enjoy a feast that reminds us of the faithfulness of God. We call it the Lord's Supper, or communion, or the Eucharist. The elements of this feast are simple. Bread and juice. 
but the meaning, the symbolism, is rich. The bread represents the pierced body of Christ. The juice, the spilled blood of Christ. And while we grieve our past sins, our current sins, and our future sins, the overwhelming emotion that we should feel at this particular moment is one of extreme joy. Because in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, we have seen in the most unmistakable way the faithful love of our God. And so at this time, we're going to pause to pray and then let us joyfully participate in the Lord's Supper. Bow with me. Heavenly Father, pour blessings on this cup, pour blessings on this bread, Lord, and, and bring, us, bring us this joy, this, 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 oh, the joy that we have in you, Lord, and that, that this cup and this, this, this bread that, that, that we partake now in us, it's a part of us now, but you are always a part of us, Lord. And we pray that, that we hear you and we be with you, Lord, and guide us. And thank you again for this cup and just be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. While the people were encouraged to take a moment to enjoy good food and choice wine, they were also reminded that this was not supposed to be a selfish indulgence. That the spiritual leaders came to them and said, hey, those of you who have the means to afford to host such a meal and such a celebration, make sure you provide for those who are not fortunate to be able to do the same. So in verse 10, it says, Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. Likewise, if partaking the Lord's Supper does not lead us to sharing with others, then it's kind of been selfish. One of the statements that I've heard throughout the years that's often made at this particular time in our service is this. Separate and apart from the Lord's Supper, we are now going to take up an offering. I understand the thought behind that. I just don't particularly agree with it. I don't believe that blessing others has ever been meant to be separate and apart from communion. 
I believe an offering is exactly where the feast should lead us. How can we remember the generosity of our God and not be compelled to share with those who do not have as much as we do? Communion's not separate and apart from the Lord's Supper, in my opinion. It is the explanation points on communion. We give because God has given us so much. And so we want to pause for a prayer and then give you the opportunity to give back to the Lord this morning. Please pray with me. Lord, you've given us so much. We are so grateful. We're so blessed to know you, to have the opportunity to worship you, to serve a God who never gives up on us. Lord, we celebrate with those around us the goodness that is in our lives, that is all from you. We give you the honor and the glory and the power. Lord, we offer our hearts in this moment, and Lord, we want to offer more. Convict us of the things that we can give you and allow us the self-control and self-discipline to give in an abundance of ways. In the name of Jesus, amen. Not only did the people of Jerusalem shed tears, but they also obeyed the Word of God. At some point during this extensive reading of the Word of God, the first five books of the Old Testament, they were reminded that as a people, they were to celebrate seven different festivals or feasts every single year. One of those festivals was the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. This festival involved building and living in temporary shelters. It was a reminder of the way that their ancestors lived when they were wandering throughout the wilderness after coming out of Egyptian captivity. And for an entire week, they were to live in these shelters. The purpose of this particular festival or feast was to remind the people that just as God had cared for and provided for their ancestors, that he too would be faithful, he would provide and care for them as a people as well. The intention was a week-long remembrance celebration of the faithfulness of God, of his goodness. Now, when the people were reminded of this festival by Ezra's reading of the Law of Moses, they were convicted. They'd either completely forgotten about this particular festival or maybe this festival had become like a President's Day holiday that we just celebrated. You know, it's one of those holidays that it's a good excuse to let the kids out of school, but by and large, you just go about your business. Nothing really changes. It's just another day. They realized that wasn't the way it was supposed to be. And so what did these people do? Well, they didn't just cry. They got busy. The festival was to occur on the 15th day of the new year. That didn't leave them a whole lot of time to get ready. But they did their best because they wanted to be the people of God. They were determined to obey. And obey they did. 
In fact, Nehemiah reflects upon that week of, of celebration and the festival, and he, and he says, you know what? It, they celebrated it in a way that had never been celebrated before. Nehemiah chapter 8, and verse 16 and 17. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on, on their own roofs in their courtyards in the courts of the house of God and in the square by the water gate, the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from the exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. This is what people do who are serious about living in a right relationship with God. They don't just listen to the Word of God. They, just, they don't just cry over their sin. They seek to obey. They enthusiastically conform their lives to the will of God. They don't just feel bad that they've held on to an unforgiving spirit for years. They begin to forgive with gusto. They don't just grieve that they've been stingy with their finances. They begin to give extravagantly. They don't just feel convicted by an unliving spirit. They set out to love like there's no tomorrow. Now, did you happen to notice the impact that this decision had on the people of Jerusalem? Probably not, because I stopped short in the reading of the word. And so listen to what is said at the end of verse 17. And their joy was very great. And their joy was very great. I want to let you in on another little secret this morning. Christianity is probably going to be a miserable experience for you if all it leads to is knowledge. Because knowledge leads to conviction. So you feel bad, and you feel guilt, and you feel shame. But if it ends there, there's not much else. Where it needs to lead to is obedience. And when you're obedient, that leads to joy. It is in obeying God's command to take care of the orphan and the widow and to not seek revenge and to encourage one another daily and a host of other good commands from God that true and lasting joy is actually experienced. Now, finally, the people of Jerusalem, they rededicated their lives to God. While New Year's Day was not the day to shed tears, these people, they understood we need to take ownership, responsibility for the different ways that we've sinned against our God. And so they, they have that worship experience. They, they prepare for that festival. They come out of that week-long celebration remembering God's goodness and His faithfulness, His everlasting love. But then they enter into a time in which we're just going to confess. We're going to confess as individuals. We're going to confess as a community. The ways that we've sinned against God, it happened on the 24th day of the month of that first month of the new year. Chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, feasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of of their ancestors. Imagine. We move from celebration and joy and then this time of just, just confession and this heart-rendering confession. And it's not only for their sins, but it's the sins of all their ancestors as well. And 
I want us to hear this very clearly this morning. This is what people do who are interested in a life-giving relationship with God. They're willing to come clean about the specific sins in their life, about the specific ways that they've, they've let God down or they, they've not followed the way, God the way they should have in their lives. And yet confession is something that many of us try to avoid at all costs, isn't it? Well, I know I do at times. Why? Because here's what experience has taught us, or at least it's taught me, that if you get gut-level honest about the things you struggle with, then there's a good chance you're going to face punishment, or maybe there'll be this verbal haranguing, or maybe you'll get this glare of disapproval from somebody. And that's no fun. And I don't want to go through that. Any of you want to go through that? If you do, I can look at you, real glare at you this morning. Nobody wants that, right? I don't want that. And so what we try to do is we try to ignore our sin or we try to hide our sin. What ends up happening is we don't realize the damage it's doing to our relationship with God and with other people and ourselves. The only way to respond is by confession. And what I want us to see this morning, though, is this, is that God doesn't respond the way so many of us respond to other people's sins or the way people have responded to our sin. God's response to sin is what? It's, it's this outpouring of grace and healing. If you don't trust that, you don't believe that, then we go back to the words of Ezra and we listen to his prayer because as he prays for these people as they're confessing and they're just rendering their hearts, he reminds them of the nature of God. And he says this in uh, chapter 9, verse 17, But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in in love. Confession is not easy, but it opens up the floodgates to God's grace and his mercy and his love and his healing. This is what happens. We read this is who God is. We read it from our scripture reading this morning from the, the passage that was selected by, from Jeff. You hear it now as they come back and repeat this. This is the nature of God. This is who he is. You trust this. You hold on to it. You live your life by this great truth. You build your life on it, as Jeff said this morning. God loves you with an everlasting love. God is anxious to pour out his grace and his mercy on you this morning. It doesn't matter what you've done in your life. He wants you in a relationship with him. And so I want to encourage you this morning to make confession a regular part of your life you, for you and God, for you and maybe someone else. You just, you just get gut-level honest. And not only did the people confess their sins, they renewed their vow to God. Chapter 10, verse 28 and 29, the rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand all these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our Lord. The rest of that chapter gives specific details about vows that they made to God. Vows about marriage, vows about Sabbath-keeping, vows about tithes, and the like. These people were determined to get back to being the people of God. So they renewed their vow. 
It wasn't the covenant had gone away. God was always faithful to keep his side of the covenant. They just needed to come back and renew their commitment to that covenant relationship as well. And for us as a people, it would probably do us good from time to time to renew our vow as well. You say, why? Well, because like the Israelites, we're not always as faithful as we should be, right? At times, some of us even completely lose our way. Now, this does not mean that the covenant you made in your baptism is no longer valid. It is. God keeps his side of the covenant. But sometimes this is what is needed. Sometimes what is required is for us to come back to God and say, God, you know what? I was here when I made that commitment. I've kind of wandered here. Maybe I've even lost my way here. But I'm back. I'm all in on being a follower and disciple of Jesus. I want to renew this covenant because I want a life-giving relationship with you more than anything else in my life. And perhaps that's the step you need to take today. 